0: Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School 1996, Week 2. Our lecturer this evening is Greer Allen, who has just finished a week of teaching in Rare Book School last week. He is doing something quite rare in the history of the Book Arts Press, repeating a lecture that he's given here before. When you hear the lecture, I think uh, you'll know why. Greer Allen. Thank you, Terry. You must know how I value this opportunity to reunite the spirits of two graphic artists some 65 years after they were studio colleagues together in Germany. Bertolt Volpe, the subject of our talk tonight, and the influential American type designer and illustrator Warren Chapel, who spent his retired years here in Charlottesville, and so to begin... Gottes ist der Orient, Gottes ist der Occident. Nord- und südliches Gelände ruht in Frieden seiner Hände. To God belongs the Orient, to him also the Occident. All northern and all southern lands dwell in peace within his hands. What we have here is the compass rose, conceived and cut in wood by Berthold Volpe for that remarkable tour de force from the workshop of Rudolf Koch, the hand-colored map of Germany. It was a project so ambitious that it was never completed. Imagine all of Germany in this detail and in this style. But what they did was done with character and grace. Now, back to Berthold Volpe's compass rose. East, west, north, south... On reflection, it might seem that Goethe's words had been addressed as much to Berthold's own universal preoccupations as to those of God. They reveal those encompassing concerns which set Berthold apart from the rest of us and drew such admiration and affection. We are here this evening to recall his career and work and particularly his letter forms because we are, after all, the targets of those letter forms. To do this, we draw on the catalogue for the exhibition which opened at the Victoria and Albert Museum in 1980 and in three years had been seen in the National Library of Scotland and the Klingspor Museum at Offenbach, Germany. Other sources have been the essay of Fritz Cradle and Warren Chapel in that reprinting of Insel Fallag's 1934 A. Beze Bischlein appearing in 1976 as the little ABC book of Rudolf Koch and others, the 1982 program for the Gaudi Award of Rochester Institute of Technology's School of Printing, Rory McLean's obituary in The Independent on July 6, 1989, with comments by Nicholas Barker, the letters to the editor which the obituary drew forth, and a number of other media extracts. But much of what you'll hear has never been revealed in print. It comes from the notes of Sue Allen, who has scribbled records of conversations on our visits with Berthold and Margaret, who captured vignettes of the man in action, who preserved the recollections of friends. All would long since have evaporated, but for Sue's devotion to these dear people. Berthold Volpe, was born into a Jewish family in the year 1905 in Offenbach, a suburb of Frankfurt on the Main in Germany. By the time he had completed his basic schooling in 1924, he was eager for the hands on activities which thenceforth were to consume him. In that year, he made two essential decisions. First, he apprenticed himself to a Frankfurt metalsmith, where he learned to work gold, silver, copper, and brass engraving letters, and chasing, that is, incising decorative patterns into their surfaces. And two, he enrolled as a pupil of Rudolf Koch in the Offenbach School of Arts and Crafts. Now, a word about Koch. Berthold was an infant in Offenbach when Koch, then 30, began work there at the Klingsport Type Foundry. The first typeface Koch designed seems uncertainly trapped in the riptide where German art Nouveau met a feeble response to William Morris. In it we find no prefiguring of the energy of Koch's later types, nothing of the texture of Marathon. Oh, how I should dearly love to have a type case full of that. Nor did the first face give any hint of what was to come in the Yesen schrift. Is it Roman? Black letter? The varying strokes and thicknesses imparted by the hand-filed punches, All those uncertainties, that's what made for the tensions and the life of Koch's best work. Witness his prime passion, writing the alphabet with the pen, the remarkable Sermon on the Mount, cruciform layout, and the words are legible. The first war came, almost 40, Koch was drawn in. It forced on him a two-pronged maturity. First, it tore his feelings so that he remained deeply religious for the rest of his life. Hear that very private piece of writing, seen since by thousands. Lord, have mercy upon me. The second ripening lesson of the war, camaraderie, ensures survival, spilled over into Koch's teaching with renewed fervor. He devoted himself to guiding aspiring scribes like Bertolt Volpe. First, you learn the discipline of writing till it becomes second nature. Then you let the text, working through you, evolve the images. The camaraderie of discipline, what started in 1918 as informal get-togethers of the local scribes, grew by 1920 into the Offenbach workshop. are the words of the American designer Warren Chapel. Among the ateliers that flourished after the First World War, Rudolf Koch's Offenbacher Werkstatt was one of the most professional and influential. It had the character of a private studio, yet enjoyed the closest possible relationship with an outstanding type foundry and with an excellent arts and crafts school. It consisted of a studio where Koch and his chief assistants worked on graphic projects and a workroom devoted to tapestry making. The example of William Morris was obvious, but the manner in which the ideas were carried out was much closer to that of a Renaissance than a Victorian studio, unquote. Chappell was with that group in 1931 and 32. He found that Koch, the master of the studio, was no administrator, but guided his assistants, all of whom had been his pupils, by the subtle force of his personality. So Berthold, having been Koch's student at the school from 1924 to 28 was selected with Fritz Cradle to become an assistant in the workshop and continued so into the early 30s. The things they did there, tapestries of Bertold's design, plates for church offerings, all sorts of ecclesiastical artifacts, altar crosses, how that strong black-letter tradition appealed, seeming to bind the spirit of that people in a graphic almost Trinitarian unity. The fabric of the church with echoes of the dense, rich type page direct from Gutenberg and the visible cultural singu- singularity of that nation. Here's a tablet incised by Berthold to the memory of Goethe and Lily Schoenemann, who in this park in the summer of 1775 had found joy and sorrow. I'm told that on his deathbed Goethe confessed that Lily Schoenemann had been the great love of his life. Then, Koch, the master's drawings, realized in wood by cradle, nothing done in the workshop ever quite topped the Blumenbuch. It is as if these ephemeral floral specimens of the wild meadow had been transfixed for all time for our delectation. And, of course, the Abedzebüchlein of 1934, where Koch's and Volpe's calligraphed alphabets remain almost indistinguishably entwined. Then, in 1932, Bertolt drew his first typeface, Hyperion. It's shown here in a thoroughly satisfying little edition of 150 copies. Decorative, and, decorative pieces and symbols done between 1925 and 37, issued by the Bauer Type Foundry, which was, even in 1938, still operating out of Frankfurt. Poignant, Herlderline's words in the epigraph, However far I wander, I shan't forget thee with thy blessed shores, my dearest river mine. For by 1935, Bertold had for safety's sake permanently settled in England, and Fritz Cradle made it to America three years later. But here in the early years of that decade is Berthold coming into his own, symbol for a book jacket, Typecast vignettes for Bauer, a trademark for a paper mill, and his own monogram. You know those monograms, typographic conceits in which an economy of strokes configures the great number of letters which which share them. Charlemagne had one. It, inspi- it inspired Carl Rollins, Yale's great printer, to place his own on the typophile's chapbook number 19 over 40 years ago. But here, less calligraphic, more in the way of a colophon found in a Venetian incunable, is Bertold. The W is clear enough above, and the O beneath. Even the L can be discerned upper left. Turn it on its side, and there's the E all right. But the letter P challenges credibility with its Janus-like symmetry. You need to invert the monogram to begin to see it. Actually, it draws on the historic antecedents um, of the letter Q, neighbor to the Greek Pi. Here's the character for the, sorry, for the, for the Phoenician, Greek-Phoenician sound. Well, enough fun and games. Back to that little book of the Bauer alphabets. We find this eagle for a coat of arms. Yet all of this was to pass. Still like a star light years away, seen today eons after it has burned out, so the work of these craft geniuses continued to illuminate the German graphic firmament. Bauer in 1936 issued Volpe's symbol of the trades and showed for the first time his Hyperion type. The goldsmith, the engraver, the bookbinder, the printer, and the title page with Koch's scissor-cut silhouette trade sign done for Berthold the silversmith. Koch had died in 1934. He did not live to see his beloved black letter turned by historical revisionists to such dark purposes as this. In a late thir- uh, late 1930s schoolbook, an ancient night in is purported to ride off to battle with the swastika emblazoned on his shield. In twelve years, that tragic empire so polluted our associations with the black-letter form that generations will need to pass before we can again feel as free to use it as did Koch with reverence and vigor and with innocence. Indeed, with Koch's passing, the workshop came to an end. What fools to have lost Volpe and Cradle! How fortunate the English-speaking world, to have received them. Although Berthold did not settle in England until 1935, he had visited there in 1932, and Stanley Morrison, alert to what was going on throughout the typographic world, asked him to do a face for a monotype modeled on the sort of bronze inscriptional letters he was then fashioning in the Werkstatt. In 1935, Albertus capitals appeared. Later, lowercase titling, and light and bold versions were added. Rory McLean wrote, It was a noble letter. And since there was no copyright in lettering design, it was stolen by every signwriter in the country who had any taste. If a royalty had been paid every time it was used, Volpe would have become very rich. I myself would be amazed if half the professionals in America over forty five years of age had not used Albertus at least once. And at his death in 1989, another wrote, Bertold Volpe's most lasting memorial has already begun in London. Twenty nameplates, Lime Street, Threadneedle Street, and so forth, have sprung up, all fresh and resplendent, in Albertus. They are the forerunners of some 2,300 street nameplates to follow in the next 18 months. Albertus, with its lowercase letters, was chosen... 53 years after its birth, to be the corporate typeface for the city of London and can be found on its logo, car parks, buildings, and meters. Letterheads and door signs at Guildhall all proclaim Albertus, and what could be more fitting at the end of his long life than that we can be reminded of Berthold Volpe every, everywhere in the city, which he knew so much about, walked in so vigorously, and loved so well. Well, here we see a sign way up in the corner under the right window. Here we see this sign, as you might see it today, tucked under the sill of a Georgian window. And St. Brides Avenue with a glimpse of that lovable red double-decker bus in the distance. A still closer view reminds connoisseurs that a revival, and this use of Albertus today is indeed a revival, a revival always partakes more of the age in which the revival occurs than of the age undergoing revival. For here, the supervising designers have elected to modify Albertus in the interests of legibility from afar by drafting what might be termed a cleaned-up Albertus extended. But these liberties with the letter forms diminish neither the honor done bear told nor testimony to the letter's staying power. Even the local tavern has elected to partake of the ambience and blend into the graceful typographic scene. Well, back to the 1930s. Two years after Albertus appeared, along came Pegasus. It was used here for the first time in Matthew Carter's film adaptation of the DNA retrospective catalogue. And through the late 1930s, Berthold worked at the Fanfare Press, where, among other things, book jackets for Victor Gollantz were planned and printed. Berthold used predominantly yellow papers with black and magenta inks, and the historian of that publishing house writes What is so astonishing is that through the Gollantz and office, though the Gollantz and the Fanfare Press offices were f- about five minutes' walk apart. The two men never met, and yet Bertolt Volpe translated the spirit of Victor's intentions with a staggering degree of skill and understanding. Sometimes instead of using a standard type, he would devise one of his own, as he did in the case of this novel, in which he wanted to create the type that would give the feeling of flight and pursuit. The letters were made into type by the fanfare press, and it later became generally available. But his professional career in Britain was dominated by the 34 years 1941 to 1975 spent in the publishing house of Faber and Faber. The spines he lettered. Who else would dare, who could run titles across those narrow spaces and still leave them legible? At their best, the spirited lettering of his jackets cannot be rivaled. Fishgate, upper left. Sandby, upper right. Remember Koch's words. STRIVE UNTIL THE DISCIPLINE OF LETTERING BECOMES SECOND NATURE. THEN LET THE TEXT WORKING THROUGH YOU FORM THE IMAGES." AND ALL THE WHILE ALBERTUS WAS THERE, FABER'S RELIABLE, AUTHORITATIVE TRADEMARK THROUGH THOSE LONG YEARS. THE FABER EXPERIENCE LEFT A MEMORABLE VIGNETTE, AS BERTOLD TOLD IT. LEONARD WOLF, THE ECONOMIC HISTORIAN, LIVED AT MONK'S HOUSE in a village near the south coast, which he and his wife, Virginia Woolf, had shared. And occasionally, he invited the Volpe family over for an afternoon. Our children, of course, had been carefully instructed to treat him with the reserve which a distinguished elderly and rather formal widower merits. But when our daughter Sarah was about nine, she brought along a little school friend, Walter, as, and as Leonard Wolfe came shuffling forward to greet us in the garden, Walter, who had no idea hum, how important our host really was, rushed up, tugged at his hand and cried, Come on, Leonard, we're going to play tag. <laughs> of course, a great many people always called upon Berthold's talents. And in 1938, Stanley Morrison commissioned this mark to celebrate type founder Carl Klingspor's 75th birthday. And before that, Francis Menel had ordered a title page device for the none such press. The Times bid him letter a new masthead title, which appeared from May 1966 through the decade. Now, day-to-day output was only one manifestation of his presence. Teaching was another. Even while an assistant in Werkstatt and serving As a teaching assistant at the Offenbach Art School, Berthold was independently in charge of the lettering classes at the Frankfurt School of Art. So it was only natural that, once established in England, he would think about turning again to teaching. But it was not till after the Second War that he had the opportunity. It was then that he began instructing at the Camberwell School of Art. Earlier, in 1941, he had married an English girl a sculptor, and they were on their way to raising four children. A month after Berthold's death, we received a friend's touching account of a visit with Berthold's widow, Margaret at the Volpe London Row House Home in Kennington Park Road. There you see her with him and a grandchild. This friend said, We had lunch together in the strange atmosphere of that house, still inhabited by Berthold in so many ways, how anyone can sort out the vast accumulation of treasures is not known. Margaret is staying put anyway. The job of moving everything would be horrendous. Margaret told us that they were married in 1941 and of how beautiful he was, slim and dark, just back from internment in Australia. Those political ironies... I think we want the lights up, don't we? No, we want to change a a set. yes. Those political ironies, gifted people, unable to remain in the lands of their origins, flee to territories ready to receive them, and which they will presently enrich by their present. Then lo, the war, and by dint of birth they become enemy aliens, slapped into internment camps. Hans Schmoller, the man who... can trolled the look of the penguin books from nineteen fifties into the seventies, was also so immured in Cape Town. Ultimately released, he was found managing a missionary printing plant in South Africa. And Berthold, think of it, hustled off to Australia, lest any treachery undermine the island defenses. Here, in much later, happier days, are Bertold and Margaret with an American visitor who, like Bertold, had been forced to flee the continent. But imagine what it must have been like to have been cast out of your native land at the age of 30, with neither the roots nor the well-worn rivulets of workflow, and then on top of that having to work ex- exclusively in an alien tongue. Bertold had come from Germany, where the language is thoroughly phonetic, what you see is what you say, to England, where the sequence of letters O-U-G-H, for example, might be spoken O. O, ow, or uff, depending on the circumstances. So it is understandable that his struggles with this problem enabled him to tell an apocryphal anecdote still after half a century with great relish. A man came to London in 1934 from the continent to live. He had burned his bridges in his native land and he couldn't go back, but he had taught himself English from books and was convinced that he could get along in the language, despite its peculiarities and exceptions. But on arriving in Piccadilly Circus from Victoria Station, his eyes met a cinema marquee, where the letters moved along a wall of light bulbs, and it said, referring to to the then new film release, Cavalcade pronounced success, (laughs) and he shot himself. (laughs) Four post-war years of teaching at Camberwell were followed by two decades begun in the mid-50s on the faculty of the Royal College of Art, which in 1968 awarded him an honorary doctorate. The citation read in part, The answer to the famous question, Où est la plume de ma tante is that the pen of your aunt is most probably in the collection of Bertolt Volpe. (laughs) For besides being a renowned calligrapher, designer of typefaces, and books, bibliophile and craftsman in precious metals, Mr. Volpe is one of the great magpie historians of our age. He is consumed by an unquenchable curiosity concerning all trades, their gear, and tackle, and trim, and especially all implements concerned with the making of letter forms, whether by pen, incision, or printing process. This college has been enriched by his presence as a teacher of this variegated lore, and many persons here present will recall nostalgically the shy but irresistible enthusiasm with which he was wont to pull out from specially designed recesses deep in his gamekeeperish garb, Byzantine scissors, or an Hispano-Moorish inkhorn. Bertold's lectures were not confined to the classroom. Every conversation, whether with a friend, with a colleague at the Double Crown Club, or the Printing Historical Society, or with an antique trader in their little stall on the Portobello Road. Every conversation imparted curious historical speculations. These vignettes of Berthold visiting Robert Haas, who in Germany had known Rudolf Koch, showed the incessant preoccupation with what is this? Who made it? How was it used? So he was a maker and a teacher. And third, he was a scholar. In 1960, Alfred Fairbank And he co-authored Renaissance Handwriting, one of the great source books. He wrote on Caslin, on Figgins, on medieval alphabets, on Stanley Morrison's 1922 visit to Koch's workshop. My dear Mr. Koch, thank you most heartily for so kindly presenting me with a splendid piece of your beautiful writing. I value it very much indeed. Auf Wiedersehen. Of course, Berthold's scholarship was crowned when he was asked to give the 1981-82 Lyle Lectures at Oxford. His subject, the Elizabethan writing master, Jean de Beauchesne. Once, while leading us on a walking tour through London, he paused before a massive new government office block. It's right here, in this very piece of land, that my hero Beauchesne lived. Now, for designers in Britain... To be able to place the initials R.D.I. after their names means more than a knighthood. It was in 1959 that Berthold was so distinguished, a royal designer for industry. A sprinkling of Americans have made it, but it's not a very crowded club. And Berthold did make the honors list with the O.B.E., Order of the British Empire, in the Queen's giving. Of course, his ebullience, his great good spirit had soon found its way into the hearts of his professional colleagues. Witness Volperiana. This little book of cartoons of Berthold done to please him and the London Typographic Circle. One man in his time presents many faces. He was such an extraordinary-looking man that he invited caricature. A head which would have, would have attracted Daumier, observed Rory McLean. And of these endowments, he was quite aware. It was very nice of you to call, he said to Sue on the telephone before we met. It mellows the shock of seeing me. (laughs) Here is that head again, this time in Israel. Berthold at the front left, of course, and behind him are Tanya and Hans Schmoller, already retired from being design and production chief at the Penguin Books. In 1982, Berthold journeyed to the Rochester Institute of Technology to receive the Gaudi Award, the cup. Margaret was with him, and it was then that we first met. They wanted to pass through New Haven to see Yale's Beinecke Library and its Arts of the Book collection. We put them up and grew to love them. Sue noted in her diary, I do love his dear, twinkly face, her serene, kind one. Berthold was then 77 years of age and as he watched Stu and me play a match of badminton in the garden he grew impatient for a volley himself and that led him to demonstrate his own exercises hands up, to the side, to the other side and was it one, two, three no, A, B, C (laughs) the alphabet was never very far his eyes swept the room of our house. What are these? And Sue notes, he is very interested in construction. How was our rooster, Weathervane, made? He grabs a book from our shelves on wood construction and studies it eagerly. His mind is a most cu- has a most curious and distinct cast for curiosities. Like the amateurs of the 18th century, we go to Whitlock's rural antique book barn. He has a good time, gets a letter stencil and a little book with printed 19th century end papers. Shall I have it? He asked himself, considering holding it in his hand. After lunch we sit and talk. He is a fund of stories. Coming on the bus, he had sat beside an English woman who had been raised in Derbyshire. And she presently repeated the saying, Derbyshire born, Derbyshire bred, strong in the arm, weak in the head. Yes, she said it herself. (laughs) Excuse me. And his perception of the Beinecke Library was memorable. When you're walking toward it, it seems like a little white box. But when I was inside, it was enormous. In the fall of 1982, we returned their visit. As he led us upstairs into his library, past rooms filled with helter-skelter with antique toys and infinite miscellany of curios, books piled in defiance of gravity, he apologized. I'm sorry there is so much disorder here, but that's the way it is. Although the cluttered Dickensian character of the rooms was folklore in the typographic circles of London, and indeed of the world. We slowly began to discover that the number of figures in that world who had never been admitted to that house was legion. I'm certain that one visit to our home convinced Berthold and Margaret that we too were of that rare breed of kindred spirits who appear to place little value upon the carefully ordered display of materials, and that we would understand, forgive, and indeed revel in the abundance of oddities sequestered there. In a letter to the Independent after Berthold's death, Sheila Hodge stated, When I wrote the history of the publishing house of Victor Gollancz, it seemed to me that there was only one person who could rightfully design the jacket, Berthold Volpe, who for some years had designed almost all the Gollans jackets, thereby setting a distinctive mark on that firm, as his later jackets did for Faber. I went to see him at his house in Kennington Park Road, a tall, narrow building next door to a pub called The White Bear. The house was like none other I have ever seen before or since. It was crammed with tools and instruments of all kinds, books, sundials, his wife's beautiful carvings, pictures and plants, a place of enchantment. Dr. Volpe's study was virtually impenetrable, with a tiny hole in the middle where he worked. The garden was as long and narrow as the house and equally crowded with plants, apple trees burgeoning with fruit, and piles of wood waiting for his wife's attention. And there was a miniature sweet pea plant with pale green leaves and tiny sky blue flowers. I asked what it was, and he told me that it, its seed came from a, the seed that it came from was the grandchild of a seed that had been found in the tomb of one of the pharaohs. This extraordinary and ravishing plant has remained in my memory all the years since, somehow symbolizing the sensitivity, originality, and beauty of Bertolt Volpe's work, That house wasn't filled in a day. It had been the project of decades. Rory McLean told us that years ago Bertolt and Margaret were mucking about in the bed of the Thames at low tide, trying to dislodge their prize, a Victorian lamp pole from the mud and in their single-mindedness failed to notice the tide rolling back in. So they huddled together on a fast-shrinking hillock and shouted for help to passers-by in the emba- on the embankment. The London police had to be called to rescue them, and, and, we were told, they had one or two children there with them in a pram. <laughs> Again from Sue's notes. I notice in their garden a huge chunk of mustard-glazed pottery with a large, molded, heraldic design on it. It is one side of a trash container from the city of Prague that had been smashed and laid to one side. They found it in a group tour visit. They saw it while walking at night and consulted with each other. Should they? Could they have it? The group was traveling by bus. (laughs) It was exceedingly heavy. I could barely raise it a few inches. They wrapped it in bits of paper and between them got it home. In the fall of 1984, he came again to America alone. Margaret says, "Love, she's put out." Sends love. She's put out at me that I didn't bring her this time. He had been invited to address a design conference at the University of Hartford. He presented a slide retrospective of a lifetime of work. And when, during the question period, he was asked what was the influence of the Bauhaus upon your work, he replied, "The Bauhaus is a myth. It was glorified by being martyred." It did some good things, but its influence on book typography was nil. No type design came out of it. Herbert Bayer did advertising, not book design. One evening of that visit, there was show-and-tell in our living room, looking at art museum catalogues done by us and l- other local friends. Bertold's observation. Your catalogues have more cultured title pages. In English catalogues, the title page is coarse and heavy. It's just slapped down. The next morning... He slept late and came down to porridge and toast, looking pink and rested, and Sue remembers we walk out along a neighborhood street, lined with lindens. He is wonderful fun to see things with. What is that? Some bird feeder? No, I tell him, that's a flagpole holder. Now I begin to notice others. He says they don't have them in England. He asks in detail what our roofing about our roofing materials. What? No slates? In England, of course, we used terracotta until the canals were built, then slates, which were much heavier, could be transported all over. Oh, Berthold, I remarked, it's so much fun to walk with you. You see so many things. No, he replied, it's not what you see. It's what looks at you, and you look back at it. In the autumn of 1986, we were again in England, and Sue recalls Berthold's dear face at the door looking wonderfully well. The door, citron green, and the window frames white, are newly painted. Houses are for sale nearby. The area is gentrifying. That evening, Berthold shows a scrapbook of exceptional printing samples, lithographs that look like etchings, aquatints that look like woodcuts. These he shows to his students. We are all getting pretty sleepy, but again and again, Berthold leafs through the book. Greer says it was like the sorcerer's apprentice. He had already been through it a number of times, and still he produced new material to show us. No time to linger is there, Margaret observes sympathetically, as Bertolt wrenches an interesting piece from me to show another. His mind is drawn to little oddities, the first mention of a printing press, the triumph of finding what the experts have missed. The next day Bertolt took us to the Bermondsey Market, a London flea market. I surveyed display tables, cluttered with objects, dirty, broken, unrelated to each other, the small debris of life, and I hesitate. Berthold, however, dives in eagerly. What do you call this? Where did you get it? How much do you want for it? And soon he has two inkwells he is very pleased with. As we move along, specialization increases the interest. Some stalls sell only silver, only pewter. Several have long rows of worn, carved breadboards. Berthold asks, would you like to go on to Covent Garden? I can see his ponderous pewter inkwell is weighing down his coat. He's relieved when I suggest going back to the house in Kennington Park Road. Margaret is not yet back from shopping, and he puts himself out to show me things. He gets into th- onto a three-legged stool and precariously reaches down huge books to me from his small study. He is proud of the little display shelves he's created by inserting boards under books and shows me how he covers cornflake boxes with brown tape for storage. As he teeters on the stew, I beg him to keep his feet carefully in the middle. He decides we can wait no longer for Margaret to return. It's a quarter of two, and he improvises lunch. Tomato, avocado, and crackers would have been enough for me, but he insists that I eat a pork pâté, which I do not want. You eat like a bird. You are in my charge now. And I eat it, says. Margaret finally arrives. He shows her the inkwell of pewter, which he believes to be the older of the two acquired. She appraises it quickly. She doesn't believe it is an inkwell. Maybe 19th century, certainly not 17th. Berthold marshals the evidence of Renaissance paintings, but he is shaken. He tells me she is very knowledgeable about artifacts. (laughs) Margaret shows me some of her collections in keeping with her own craft of jewelry making, a number of Jewish wedding rings with little tabernacle-like boxes, and in keeping with her art of sculpture, a great number of robot toys. In the morning, we prepare to leave. We're on our way to see the designer, Derek Birdsall. We ask, what's he like? Berthold replies, I'm a very good designer. And his personality? Well, he's a nice person. Not very revealing, is it? Margaret sympathizes. Berthold is not very good at describing people. She says that the question period at Rochester, they asked him what he thought of some person. His hesitation was so lengthy that he appeared to have great reservations about the man. Margaret seems more impulsive and freewheeling, whereas Berthold Berthold balances a judgment. Their oldest son, Paul, is a doctor. Paul is the child we're most proud of, she declares happily, as if anyone would understand her my son the doctor attitude. Oh no, Berthold is shocked. We're proud of all of them. Here is the last letter we received from dear Berthold our visit to England in October 1988, he had shown us his latest passion, a stack of those printed linings which opacify envelopes. He was taken by the multiplicity of their patterns. And when we got back in November, Sue started to accumulate American examples and presently sent him a batch. And this was his reply. Thank you very much for your very informative letter. As you can see, I'm trying to answer in kind at least as far as the envelope linings are concerned. The American you have sent me are much more exciting and friendly. One last anecdote. I had always been curious to learn what it is about the great and the famous which sets them apart from the rest of us. And remembering that T.S. Eliot, the poet, had spent a life as managing director of Faber and Faber and had therefore been Berthold's colleague, if not his boss, I urged Berthold, Tell me, what was Elliot really like? Oh, well, he was an ordinary person, like other persons. Then he paused. I'll tell you something very curious. One evening after work, we were riding down in the elevator together. We exchanged pleasantries and parted at the street. And when each had walked some ten paces, Elliot turned and called Volpe... Volpe, I haven't forgotten you. And you know, Greer, I have never been able to figure out what he meant. Well, from a lifetime in bureaucracies, I volunteered that it must have concerned some memo from Berthold that had been lying for months unanswered on Elliot's desk. But no, that was too pat and simple to quell Berthold's determination to fathom the matter in its every particular. Still, now that that generous, ranging, gifted mind is at last at rest, we can only echo Eliot's words spoken so many years ago and say with him, they're told, we have not forgotten you. Thank you.